Hello, and welcome to Season 5 of Captain's Corner. We'd like to take a moment to let you know how grateful we are to you, our listeners, for making this podcast such a success. We believe that Season 5 will be our best yet. We have a great lineup of speakers for you to enjoy. So we ask that you share this on your social media with your friends and family, and of course, give us a like and leave a review. Thank you. We hope you guys enjoy the season. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Nathan Miller, professor of musicology at Asbury University. This fifth season of Captain's Corner is sponsored by PFS Financial. That's PFS Financial. And they use biblical principles to guide you in growing and stewarding your wealth. But more importantly, PFS will guide you in fulfilling your search for significance and help you establish a legacy that will embody your passions. For more information, visit pfsfinancialfirm.com. And our thanks to the CEO of PFS, J.D. Pelecchia, who serves on the Tampa Area Command Advisory Board. And he's the chair of our finance committee and is a wonderful, godly man. You can hear an interview that we had with him on the fourth season of Captain's Corner. We we're thankful for his team and the way they're coming alongside of us to bring you today Captain's Corner. Welcome to Captain's Corner. Captain Andy Miller here. And I have the unique privilege of the first time interviewing a family member. And I'm not just family member, but the one who I, sh- outside of my wife, I've shared the room with more than anybody else in my life. And that is my brother, Professor, and now Dr. Nathan Miller. Welcome to Captain's Corner. I'm glad to be here. That's, uh, it'll be confusing for your audience today. <laughs> we sound so similar. So, yes, who's asking and who's answering will be challenging. It's just one I'm person talking continually. Yeah, this is I didn't I, think about that. You know, when when I spoke at when I preached to Asbury, I was, I was able to Asbury University where you are a professor of musicology and and orchestra. Um, I need to make sure I keep this professional, too. And like uh, uh-huh. as opposed to just me and you cutting up too much. But when I was there um, for a week and just so everybody knows, I'm the older brother. Uh, I preached for a week at Asbury. It was a great experience, but I became known as like the b- blonde Prof Miller because of our voices being so similar. Which was beautiful for me because I've always been I told I sound like Andy my whole life, so it was nice. Yeah, and, and one week tr- one week of justice. There it is. Uh, the truth is, I always we say it's like we both sound like our dad. So even though we're different from our dad, but. There's a lot of similarities, so if if you're if you're we'll have to have a bonus episode where you and I sing together. <laughs> we we will we will keep that from people. No, 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 they should enjoy it. Okay, so I I've you know I enjoy any dialogue, most dialogue I should say. There've probably been a few in my life that I haven't enjoyed with my brother, and we have great conversations and share similar passions, um, in part because of of how we were nurtured by our parents and in the ministry in the Salvation Army. We were classmates because we were both uh, graduates of the Booth Academy. Uh, Only four graduates of that school, of the Miller Home School. And uh, we could tell some stories about that too. But but that shaped shaped where we... um, Many of the ways that were similar, and we were both music majors at Asbury University. We're so roommates in college. Roommates in college. Yep, that's yeah, exactly. right. Best man, in, man in each other's wedding. Though I did have an assistant best man in Captain Jeff Marquis. So, just to throw that out there. Assistant to the best. Man, assistant to was. the best man. <laughs> yeah, correct. So one reason I thought, well, this would be a good time to get Nathan on, is that he just 
in the last week or two, uh, successfully defended his PhD dissertation, and I think is all pretty fresh in his mind. Unless you've already forgotten it all, forgotten it all. Okay, it's, it's gone. All gone. It's like I took took the test, just got it out. You know, but um, I, th- I think his subject is will be really interesting to our listeners, and um, it, it, it deals within Nathan's discipline. So as well, Nathan, Nathan, as opposed to me telling everybody about you. Tell me about you. Who is Nathan Miller? What What is it that you do? And tell me, of course, about your beautiful family. Okay. So I am a uh, professor of musicology. Uh, What's that mean? What's musicology? Musicology. Uh, well, my, my PhD is in musicology and ethnomusicology. Musicology is the comprehensive study of music. So we are snobbish and musicologists are snobbish that we feel like we're the real study of music so it incorporates music history music theory aesthetics acoustics philosophy etc 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 popular reception um so it covers just a thorough in-depth study of music um ethnomusicology is a field that came around in the 20th century uh, and it's really people thought about it initially as a way or is initially called comparative musicology which is a sort of a a hyper Western lens at looking at music of other people. So they kind of thought if we can compare the music of other people, we can learn about, and this is where the real bias is, was initially is that if we can look at these, um, uh, more outside, well, these more barbaric cultures, we can essentially take a lens back and see the past of Western music, which this is, was very problematic. Uh, so it's come to be uh, as, through studying music of the world, the discipline has uh, really evolved to being more understanding music through different lenses. So it does have a heavy emphasis on other musics from around the world. Um, but more than that, it's also just applying different lenses than looking at the score, analyzing the music, but like, what is the participation in music? Um, like there's things that are important that give us meaning as musicians or as people uh, participating or receiving or, uh, or, um, consuming music there's things that bear meaning and hold value to us that aren't told in the score and so through by musicality by like participating in music that's not your own or by um critical evaluation of a real of asking questions and doing field work um Mm -hmm. that you can come to other understandings of music so that's been really important to me uh those lenses and so i I like to consider myself a historical ethnomusicologist. And so in my research into Salvation Army music, as opposed to just looking at who wrote what, what did they write, what's its chronological order, but to really think about how did Salvationists use music in their mission? How did Salvationists engage with music? And then what can that tell us about themselves, about them? What can that tell us about the experience? So as opposed to just cataloging looking at scores and music and genres right. instead thinking about the lives of musicians of salvationist musicians right and you do that then in that discipline in other ways too so it's not just with how salvation respond but um you do that in other courses you teach um so it's not like courses you teach might seem like you are mu- history music history like but it's broader than that and so that's like so when you would teach a course on jazz or african-american music or symphonic literature world music like yeah you think about it in a broader way boy i'm really tempted at this point to want to talk about like uh comparing this to biblical hermeneutics but 
we're going to resist because I want to get to your subject a little bit more because there's mm. there, there really is a contrast um, in how we look at text and what texts mean and how we interpret them. But I'm going to resist. I'm going to resist. Yeah. So let's um um no no you didn't but let's talk about some of the other things you do at Asbury before we get into your dissertation. I teach courses in music history, world music, history of African American, other other upper level musicology and ethnomusicological classes, as well as directing the orchestra program and the chamber music program. Uh, and then beyond, that's my work as a professor at Asbury. Uh, as you and I and many other Salvationists who attended Asbury, uh, we benefited from the Salvation Army Student Fellowship, uh, which right. is a student group and also a, a ministry of the national of national headquarters to students. Um, but along with that is a abandoned songsters which i oversee so i lead the band and oversee the songsters as far as national headquarters is concerned though our friend jeff barrington leads the songsters dr jeff barrington dr jeff barrington leads those in a practical sense yeah. uh, not not just a practical sense like he leads the songsters and um, i insist that you call me doctor from now on yeah. and i call you doc- i'm captain you, doctor okay yeah and you can call me colonel doctor oh yeah so you're as, K- a, as a kentucky colonel. as a kentucky colonel correct so Bearing all the rights and privileges therein, okay. so they tell me. So, anyway. yeah, that's unique. So, like, as far as, like, people understanding your discipline as a musicologist, an ethnomusicologist, historical ethnomusicologist, all these terms that we want to apply, that maybe helps people understand, um, like, they might see you, maybe even students see you, particularly outside of the music department, as a conductor, you know? And you are, yeah. and you're a musician, and you're um, a premier, world, you know, per, renowned alto horn player which there's only a few of those in the world right oh, yeah. uh, and and so that's a part of your discipline and how you live out your vocation all those things but as far as an academic this is your area is what you just described so yes <laughs> and you have a great immediate family you have an extended family too that's pretty good i would suggest but tell me about your yes wife i ha- my wife ellen is the best uh she Current, she has, we have two daughters, a four-year-old Eliza, just turned four this past Saturday, and a one-year-old Audie, who was born in February of 2019. Um, so f- since Eliza's been born, Ellen has stayed home, but she's done a variety of things during that time, such as leading a nonprofit arts organization, um, doing in-home child care for other families, as well as working part-time at the Corps, doing um, the Lexington, and Kentucky youth, Corps. Lexington, Kentucky Corps, doing children and youth ministries. So she's the most productive and disciplined person I know. So she just has done a lot, and she's great. Awesome. Um, so and we have she a great helped you family. get this, helped you get through this process of writing this dissertation. Yeah. Which is about Salvation Army banding, in a sense, but um, and it's entitled Inside Outside. Give me the uh, correct title. Inside Outside, colon, the Cultural Paradox of Salvation Army Brass Bands in America During the Age of Nationalism. Okay. Like any good PhD dissertation has to have an overly complex title. Yes. The rub of it is the inside-outside is I kind of track how the Salvation Army exists and Salvationists understand themselves as it relates to American culture at the time. Okay. And so they're both simultaneously inside and outside culture. And the way those two things, there's kind of a shift that happens. Where at the beginning, the Salvation Army is fighting to be inside of culture there's taking cultural elements taking music taking practices and fighting for places on the street and essentially shouting as loud as they can to poor working class people we are you like we are like you can be us like join us um but they're reviled by Mm -hmm. 
all of church society or well-to-do society, people think they're these women officers are having orgies. They think they describe them as stinking in their nostrils. Mm-hmm. They arrested. It's very problematic. Uh, they've received as a problem by society, but it's not too long till that begins to shift. And certainly by the by World War One, with the Donut Girls, this image has changed entirely where they're beloved by society. But by that point, the music of the Salvation Army has changed. So they're not just taking the music of people on the street and shouting, we are you. They've kind of created, Salvationists create their own musical language and their own cultural artifacts so that when they're seen on the street, they're seen as they're beloved, but it's not carrying the same message that it used to. So there's, they're kind of always navigating this relationship to culture. So this inside outside is a play on that. And it's also kind of a little tip of the hat to my own experience as I try to, as I'm kind of looking at this, I I really strive to use a lot of outside sources in this dissertation, um, as opposed to just sticking with Salvation Army material from the War Cry or the local officer magazine. Um, So I really look to bring in outside voices, which hasn't been done very much in Salvation Army music scholarship. So a lot of um, primary source research with with newspapers and such. Yeah, so. that's really interesting. So, and, and you talk about other Salvationary musical scholarship. There's not much of it, and so you know, like your main like anybody besides our mentor and friend, Dr. Ron Holtz, come to mind. Yeah, there's a there's a handful of people that have done some in the in varying degrees of scholarship. And there's more now as you, as kind of with all fields of salvation studies, things have kind of starting right. to take off. Right, right, right. This is um, key. So by far the most important salvation music historians, Ron Holtz. And so I was fortunate that he was a mentor of ours. Um, my position in Asbury was his position. So in a lot of ways, like I just sit on the shoulders of, of Ron. So I have his office and I took over his classes and his things. Uh, and then also, and a lot of ways, I see my research as like a continuing or a right. broadening of what he began. Right. Um, and fortunately, he has been unbelievably gracious to me. Um, when he when I took his, this job and he retired, he stepped away. He didn't tell me much, but he said, "Never feel, never feel obligated to do things the way I've done them. Never feel obligated by the decisions I've made to perpetuate those." Right. So he's a very graceful. Right. Um, and that extends really beyond the SASF and the orchestra, but even to yeah, um, even I to think your about scholarship. It, I, yeah, and he he didn't has, didn't say it as directly as that, but he <laughs> certainly has implied that on multiple occasions. Which makes it easier um, if you ever disagree with him. <laughs> correct. I, it is true. It's a, it's a real gift that he was able to say, "Don't like you don't have to, you know, don't worry about my my shadow or any of these things." Right. Um, so I was really I'm beyond just his role in mentoring me and helping nurture me in a hundred ways. Yeah, sure. Me too. Yep. Um, really thankful for he and B, um, Mm -hmm. the role they played in both our life, which is, you know, part of the shape. Sorry. I'll jump. What's that? Yeah. If I jump into some other scholars, there's a a salvationist Brinley Boone did a lot of, Oh yeah. Has a couple of books, play the music, play, sing, sing the music, sing, sing the right. Yeah. Anyway, his, and his is very, you know, it's, like other things published by the army in its time is geared specifically to salvationists and it's not particularly scholarly and, you know, just kind of shares the story of the army with, you know, it's hagiographic. It's Mm -hmm. sharing. It's not bad. It's reporting. Um, He's a reporter to take all of it. He's a journalist. Yeah, correct. You have to take all of that with a grain of salt because he's not, 
sources, you know, there's often like, as an American newspaper said, so you're never spent a lot of a good bit of time trying to track down some actual sources for Brindley Boone without, without always the most success, <laughs> which is not to say they weren't, that he fabricated. Yeah, that's right. Just, that's right. It's hard when you don't have any information for how to look, it's hard to find them. Yeah. Uh, then other people raced Ray Steadman Allen had right. had done a number of little essays and things, um, and then there's a handful of new books. There's actually a really great um, a really great book by Gordon Cox, who's a music educator in uh, Great Britain, I believe. I believe or he may have been a professor of education, mm-hmm. uh, not music education. I don't believe. Anyway, he grew up in the army and was raised in army music systems. And as he was an adult, toward his retirement, I think even I don't. He uh, he started recognizing that he really grew up in two worlds. He's like that this Salvation Army musical world that I grew up in was different than all of the other music education I had. He talks about kind of having to navigate between the language and things he was taught in his piano lessons versus the things he learned in his junior band at the core. And that sparked his interest. And he actually did a lot of really great research. So he wrote a biography on Richard Slater called The Musical Salvationist. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, and he uh, he went through a lot. Of, he did a lot of um, just really laborious work going through local officer magazines and taking out like data of things that are listed that they have listed about bands. And then he also was given Richard Slater's grandchildren gave him access to Richard Slater's diaries. So he's the only wow. person that I think has gone through those by has gone through that resource. So that's so he's a he just kind of has this one work, but it's really excellent. Wow. So that was really helpful. And then there's a handful of um, people that are of our age who are doing some work. Um, they're largely in the like just really focused on Salvation Red bands, particularly in England. Right. Another person whose research is Trevor Herbert's not a Salvationist, but he's like the the scholar on brass bands, English oh, okay. brass, British gotcha. brass bands. So he, so he has a chapter in his book on the British brass band called God's Perfect Minstrels. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So but it's, there's, it's all kind of, yeah, he's a cultural historian too. So his, his perspectives are really great. But what hasn't happened, or at least that I've ne- never encountered, is someone really looking to place the Salvation Army in cultural context. So Trevor Herbert does it as it relates to British brass bands, mm-hmm. but not really as Salvationist musicians. And one of my sort of essential points is the salva- a Salvationist musician, in large part, or almost always sees themselves as a part of the greater mission of the Salvation Army. Mm-hmm. So to take those things together, so as opposed to just looking at brass, the Salvation Army brass band, as Trevor Herbert does, uh, but to really think about it more specifically about how does this relate to them as salvationists and their identity as salvationists right and the mission of the army and i think for people um who get a chance to read your work or whatever versions of it makes its way to be more public it's uh, also unique because the study of the salvation army in america is not as like the what you're talking about here is primarily things that have come from england of course dr holt's did a little bit more and he, one of the unique things he has and one of the reasons why your work on kind of pulling outside sources more outside sources i should say is that he had based upon his family legacy an amazing amount of documents available to him um from his own family library which are like the yeah. sources that people i mean people use to this day i mean they're some of the most critical sources that we have available to us for salvation army studies yeah. okay and again, the work that the work that he did was voluminous yeah. on 
in those sources. So I don't, I don't ever want to imply that what I'm doing is like he missed something. Like he just had a lot of work to do and now there's some more work left to do. Okay, so where we are now, interestingly, is that we have a real second generation of critical scholarship within what I call, I mean, I, I didn't identify the name, Salvation Army Studies broadly. So we had the work of I mean, you know, Ron Holtz in musicology and the historical work of Ed McKinley, the uh, historical theology work that was happened by you know per, Roger Green, David Reitmeyer, um, those folks. And so this is like a, we're thankful for all of those things that they did on top of others like um, Norman Murdoch. Um, we, we keep going through the list of folks who have done scholarly work on Salvation Army studies. But at the same time, now we're kind of like to a next generation where even some of the claims of Salvation Army scholars have to be evaluated. And even the way they those folks interpreted primary sources requires more detailed analysis and conclusions. And also there's new disciplines and data that comes through. So I think that that's one thing that your work does. Um, you want to comment about Salvation Army studies before I get into your content? Yeah, well, there's, there's an interesting thing, which is that we end up, the Salvation Army is an organization and it's as, um, as tightly knit and closely guarded in some ways as an organization can get. And for a long time, um, you, I mean, until in my, and I deal with Salvation Army studies in America. And so until right. Ed McKinley's Marching to Glory comes out, there's not a real good history. Wisby's book is good. It's a, you know, um, but it's not on the same, on the same scale. Like he's thoughtful and um, like in some ways, Wisby begins it. Well, and like Sally McKinley's, Chesson too, to, when, when she gets, gets in there. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's other things scholarly. that are, yeah. is a little bit more scholarly. Sally Chesson is a beautiful writer. Right. Um, but you have this, you have, we, the stories that we told about ourselves are to carry on a, a certain image. And sometimes we, we mute some stories and other stories are left undone. And so when Ed McGinley begins his Marching to Glory book and he uh, kind of uh, paints a, like a really beautiful picture of uh, Railton and the Seven Hollywood Lasses marching down the gangplank to claim America for God. Like he captures both like the power of what they, the call of the Holy Spirit in their lives and like how confident they were in what they're doing. But also he describes them kind of bumbling down the gangplank. Um, like also just how overwhelmed they were. And like, he starts bringing a real critical lens to that. So that's, to me, that's where like real salvation based scholarship really begins. We start asking the hard questions as we are further removed from some of those people that's continued on. And like, particularly, I think a, a big watershed moment was when uh, General Larson wrote his 1929 book. Yeah. And it's kind of to have a general of the army, like peel back the lens a little bit and look a little bit more critically. Um, and and so, receive popular. So in a popular context, it's received yeah, broadly. Correct. Yeah, we've we're at a place where we have the benefit of existing, um, and just from conversations I've had with Ed McKinley, like you know, there's some some things, in some books that he felt like he couldn't write because people couldn't receive receive it. Right. Um, and I don't think that's really the case anymore. I've not had any kickback from Salvationists as I've started. Um, you know, just looking critically at things as well as, and I'm certainly friendly, but I don't have a, an ax to grind. Right. Um, 
You, uh, you, agreed. Anyway. you don't have an axe to grind with the Army and said you're able to look critically. And one of the areas that you do in your dissertation, how, how about that transition? How about that pivot? So now is, is uh, like, for instance, the way that the Shirley family there is remembered go. and the way that that story is told. So um, I, your daughter's name is Eliza, which is an interesting one, too. Um, but I know that that wasn't only because of Eliza Shirley, but there was at least some part of that, that connection to your naming of Eliza. But... Tell me about it was, like what, it was influenced. Influence. Yes. There you go. About how we remember Amos Shirley, who still has you know just even an hour from me, um, Major Corbett, um, Cindy Corbett. Her she's a descendant of the Shirley family, um, so they're still part of the Salvation Army. But yet, they're how they're remembered is something that you point out in your dissertation. So tell us about that. Yeah. So it's, it's just a sub sub note in my dissertation because they. So the Shirley's are a large story, but we often we tell the story of Eliza Shirley, and as we should, she's a, this maybe the central figure in the Salvation Army coming to America. And so, uh, but and it's a 16 year old girl who feels called by the Holy Spirit. She's a Salvation Army officer, which can't happen now. 16 year old girl be a Salvation Army officer, but she wants to come to America. She's going to come to America because her dad's an American. She and her mom were left. Her dad's the foreman at a silk factory, I believe. Um, and so he gets enough money to bring his daughter and wife o over to America. And so she tells William Booth, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going over to America. I'd like to start the Salvation Army. And he tells her, no, you should don't listen to your pa family. Like, you need to stay here and be an officer. Mm. And she's like, no, I'm going to be with my family. And so he kind of gives her his blessing. You know, if things go well, then we'll, we'll, we'll send a delegation. We'll, we'll do this right, essentially. So she comes over and her dad, Amos, um, this is 1879, uh, just before, been, the year before. Yeah, working, he's been in this factory. He buys the chair factory, rents out a chair factory. He himself, 1879, before Railton lands, like he builds seats. You know, he does all this work, and they, he promotes the, the preaching of his wife and his daughter. And they preach, and they preach for a while and without, without, much, without much success. But as Amos preaching at the chair factory one night, that brings around the first Salvation Army convert. <laughs> And the mission, the, the the ministry together with his family, Amos, I believe it's Annie. Is that right? Amos, Annie, and Eliza. Mm, I'm uh, sorry, I don't know. This, this is the, the real flourishing of the Salvation Army ha Army happens here. The success of the army grows out of this core, this the chair factory in Philadelphia. And it's pretty quickly they start a second Salvation Army. When Realton comes, they split it, I think, eventually into seven cores that grew out of that one chair factory. And then when Railton leaves, uh, Amos is the, the de facto national commander for the Salvation Army for some time. I mean, he takes a delegate and he has a delegation. When Railton lands, there's a delegation of Salvationists that greet them with mm -hmm. the Shirley's in New York. Often forgotten. Um, and he's this, it's this inspiring story. He himself was, he himself was, uh, will be described as being saved at a Salvation Army service in England before coming over to the U.S., but what happens is like he's kind of like he's a, this a central part as, as as important as anybody else, you know, not more important than Eliza or something. Uh, but we don't ever talk about him. And I kind of had this question. And so as I started digging into it, I realized I came across articles in the, the New York Times and what was called the National Police Gazette. Um, and uh, the reason we don't talk about him is because he ran off with a convert. Mm -hmm. So he he and a young female convert uh, ran off together. Mm -hmm. and we don't tell his story because there's kind of like, there's this dark, this dark part of it, but we also end up because we mute his story. We miss a, a lot 
the other, we miss the redemption. So like he comes back to his family, hmm. like he's reunited with his wife. And when he later dies, um, while he has a, a heart of a, you know, heart attack essentially while swimming off the Jersey coast, he is hailed as a hero, like a hero of the Salvation Army. And like he has had this rest- restoration and redemption. When I dug a little bit further, I also learned that he didn't, like he wasn't saved at a Salvation Army service. Like he had been a Methodist minister before and lost his faith and had returned to faith hmm. at a Salvation Army service in England. And so you have this picture of this guy who's messy and it's dirty, but I think it, like what we're reminded of when we hear these stories is we're reminded that it's not because Amos Shirley was this amazing person that the Salvation Army succeeded, but it's because like he allowed the Holy Spirit to work in his life mm-hmm. and he sinned and he fell and he came back. And I think there's a lot of Christians and Salvationists that need to hear that story that like the, our sin and our failings don't um, mean that the work we did didn't matter or that the mm-hmm. work that the spirit has done through us. And also like, because we have sinned and fallen doesn't mean that we are, cannot be redeemed or that we cannot be restored and brought back into right relationship. Um, so anyway, there's like a bit of that, but there, that is a no salvation army history. It's not the history of Eliza Shirley, not in any of the histories of the army in America. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, the Amos is just a footnote. Wow. He's just a kind of a, a side note. We don't even acknowledge him as a national commander, even though I think he spent five or six months as national commander of the army. Hmm. And like, we just, we only talk about Eliza and Eliza's great. Um, but we just miss out on, we miss out a little bit on Amos Shirley. Yeah. And like some of the complexities of that story, some of the messiness of that story. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. And it's that. like, it reminds me of the, that reminds me of the Bible. It's like when we read the Bible, we encounter, and we encounter these flawed characters, we're reminded that it's not that the Israelites were just the, the best people that God chose them. Right. But that God worked through them. And it's like, it's not that the disciples were the, 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 the best and the strongest, but instead, like right. the spirit of God empowered them. And that's where, that's the stories that I really want to share. Yeah. That I think needs to be, be heard. Is it's not like the salvation is successful when the Holy Spirit empowers people who give of their lives. And, that's and, the power of the army. And you didn't write this. You didn't write your dissertation for, um, you know, a div- divinity school or a uh, evangelical college. You did this at University of Kentucky, where you're doing this as ethnomusicologist. And so it's interesting. You still have to talk about some of those things, and that's like your own personal side of of how this is applied and what you describing the reality of what it is. I'm sure you had some opportunities to talk about that. But I'd love to get back into like the army. The Amos is just a. F- Go ahead. Amos is just a footnote in my dissertation. Oh, okay. I'd love to write a little, you know, uh, I tell his story as it applies. I don't go into the, the sort of detail that I went into here oh, okay. about Amos's story. Like, it's just like, that's just a, for what I'm talking about, the music of the army, it's not super important. Right, right. You know, it's like, as they, as they establish the Salvation Army in America is important. And some of the, the themes of, you know, what I do with the Shirley's is really looking at their songs and the songs that they're singing that we have re- recording the record of them singing. And how does that tell us about how salvation or salvationists perceive themselves? Right. And one of the, the kind of the primary metaphor, the things that they're singing are songs about pilgrims bound for glory, like in the sort of the confidence of their success, but this idea that they're gathering, gathering travelers on the way, like that's mm-hmm. how they're preaching to people. That's the music they're singing. Those are the songs that they're singing. So I, I do talk about the Shirley's, but, and I mention Amos, and I mention in a footnote and what happened um, to a little life. bit of his story. 
Yeah, interesting. Yeah, but that's just a little bit. Um, so one thing is interesting. Some people might not know, and if they've gotten this far in the podcast, maybe they could um, they figured it out already. But the Salvation Army, because of this like inside outside ID- identity, ended up moving towards creating a very um, wide, uh, you know, expansive literature um, catalog of music literature. I mean, we and yeah. over, I mean, over a hundred years now of putting this together, of developing composers, of having publishing houses, of having standards for how music happens. And, and this is like distinct denominationally um, with how that works. So I'm just like, I think that idea that the Salvation Army is something, has this literature is maybe unique to somebody. So how would you describe like when this to somebody who's outside of the Salvation Army? They don't, they didn't grow up in it. Like you and I both were um, not, we weren't, didn't grow up in traditional cores or traditional core bands, but this was a part of our own social experience growing up. Um, But how do you describe that to people on the outside? I think that we, that we didn't grow up in that tradition. We never, well, for a short period of time where we ever had a core with a large band program. Um, the music programs at the core that we grew up in were a little different. I think that helped has helped provide me a different insight. Um, but anyway, uh, I'll, if, like, I'll kind of steal the show here for a little bit, and this will kind of be long and winding. But I'll try to be as concise as possible. So the thing, the, the Salvation Army, if you describe the music of the Salvation Army now to other people, there is no parallel. There's no parallel for the Salvation Army music in other denominations. Okay. It's wow. just different, and there's a handful of ways that it's really it's really different. One, the volume, the 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 quantity of music that the Salvation Army has produced is unparalleled. Only the Catholic Church would have more music composed for it. As and far they as have like, a little longer hymn, to do that, not hymns, but like two thousand years of history. Yeah, but even so, it's not the institutional structures of the church that are overseeing it. Right. Right. When when Mozart's writing his requiem or box writing is b minor mass like there's not an editorial board from the catholic church who's saying no you have too many uh this this isn't going to communicate with people so you need to edit it like that's not happening like the salvation army experience of having like in-house like this rigidly uh curated and preserved and regimented musical system is unique and it's the birth it's the the brainchild of william booth and richard slater richard slater describes wanting to have one band life that if we're going to sustain this an essential part to my argument is that the salvation army is maybe best understood as a nation Mm -hmm. right that um we don't really fit and so um oh his name's alluded david taylor is david taylor who writes like a mighty army like a mighty army he has this idea that it's um, that to understand the army, you have to understand these three strands of identity, yeah. like mission and its origins, then it becomes an army, then a church, and that those are all interwoven together to create the Salvation Army and how we understand ourselves. Well, I would suggest like there's a fourth strand, and that's as a nation. Mm-hmm. And the things that I would suggest about this that really kind of, I think, cement this is if you think about the songs we sing um, and actually, my wife, Ellen, is the first person to clue me onto this. Uh, she grew up like your wife as the daughter of a Methodist minister. Um, but she noticed that she, the Salvation Army sings songs about itself. She's like, I've never been to a church where they sing songs about themselves. And you, you won't find songs in the Methodist hymnal about 
I'm so glad that I'm a Methodist mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. or uh, songs about Catholics singing about Catholics or Baptists singing about being Baptist. But we sing about ourselves in a way that like a sort of anthems, a sort of like national anthem. Yeah, so yeah. We sing about ourselves and this is kind mm-hmm. of an, an essential piece of identity so when uh, musicology likes to be interdisciplinary, so I really in- engaged in looking into the field and the study of nationalism. And uh, the mm-hmm. Salvation Army bears all the characteristics of the birth of a nation. Hmm. So we have to remember that nations aren't nation states, but nations are identities of people bound together by shared identity. And so when new nations or new identities are formed, there's like they're always formed in a, from a state of enemy. And enemy means... Uh, a state where people don't feel represented by the by the structures and the systems that ought to be governing them. Mm-hmm. So when the United States is born, people do not feel represented. No taxation without representation. They feel like they are not being represented. And so what they do is they begin to create their own culture and their own identities from pre-existing identities. And they adjust them. So they start creating a new music and a new art. They sing songs about themselves. And there's this heavy emphasis on flags and creation of new language and new dress and adding meaning to dress, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And so you think about the hyper symbolism of the salvation of the American flag and things of the American founding. Uh, You have similar things that happen in the Salvation Army. Mm-hmm. Right. We have this what other church emphasizes its flag or sings about itself or separates itself in dress as systematically as the Salvation Army does. Uh, and also the Salvation Army, where it has grown and been successful, have always been in places of anime where people are not. What do you mean by anime? So I'm no, I mentioned that before this idea, anime, A-N-O-I-M-I-E. I think I spell I don't spell well out loud um so that's the state a state of anime is not being having your needs or your interests not represented by the people that are supposed to be representing your needs or interests okay right and so you can think about these identities that like as nations have formed and changed over time or um it's when people don't feel represented when they're they are overlooked by their governments or by their it doesn't have to be a government. It could be just like those organizing. And you could suggest a similar thing happens to the LGBT communities mm-hmm. where they feel they're outside. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they a response was to create its own culture. And you have emphasis of flags as well. Mm-hmm. It's like you kind of create new identities. And so the Salvation Army did that for people in poor working class communities that were outside of the systems of Victorian England. And similarly, where the Salvation Army has succeeded other places around the world, it has been in places where people are not represented and their needs are not being met. And the Salvation Army steps in and provides them a new identity and a new source of meaning, Mm -hmm. a new way of organizing their life, new structures, which bring them into the redemptive grace of of the Lord. Right. And this reminds me of the kingdom. Like, I think at at its best, the Salvation Army understands itself as the, the or salvation understand themselves as citizens and soldiers of the kingdom of God. Right. Sometimes the identity of the Salvation Army can become so strong that the kingdom of God becomes secondary. Right. That's right. a problem. Yeah. That's not been and my so then, experience. Yeah. But that's a it's a danger. That identity our, the, the identity piece of salvation is, is very strong. Right. And some re- just research um, some fieldwork studies I did in about Salvation Army open airs. I mean, I talked to a few salvationists who don't affirm any salvation army doctrines but the identity piece for them as being a salvationist is such a strong marker they can't let it go so they continue attending 
attending. This is not the common experience. This, this is, these are. And that's a, that's a problem in that you, in, in like other, other denominations in churches as a whole, like ultimately they want to foster that sense of belonging and being, and that's part how people end up being discipled or, you know, coming to Christ in the first place and then being discipled. Um, and, and I'm certain that there are other cultural Baptist, cultural Methodist, and cultural big box, you know, mega church people who that's just what they do. They don't really, it doesn't matter what they actually believe. That's just who they are. And that's a little bit of that experience. Um, so that, that's the danger yeah. is that that becomes disconnected from reality, that the identity doesn't rep- represents more narrative and not truth. And that, that, that's Correct. a concern yeah. that you have is that, so it's not, and that, and that can be the case too. Like, um, it doesn't, uh, it could be with race, racial issues, gender issues. You can be so connected to your identity group that it's not, um, like it doesn't in, in the narrative of that, that doesn't matter as much as how you, what the actual truth is behind it. Um, so, and the same thing is for us, like, it doesn't matter that yeah. some of these folks well, are involved in open airs and they get their identity through that. Um, if it doesn't represent like actual change in their life. Yeah, correct. I'm going to jump back into this kind of how that ties into music or yeah, how my sure. study kind of connects uh-huh. that. So Salvation Army in its beginning, it's like Booth hates bands. Like he right. sees the and grass choirs. banding culture of England in choirs, right? That's why we call them songsters because he swore he'd never have a choir. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you have this, this in England, the brass band is a part of working class culture. It's men in mines. Right. It's a uh, W. Now, British brass bands at this time, the late 19th century, are playing, they see this as Victorian social uplift. So, m- mine management sees this as a way of in- helping better their miners. And so, they, they're playing classical music, they're playing cultural music they're not playing music of working class people it's like they're right. this, it's the working class tradition so in the salvation army whose music before bands is the, the music hall which is like the depraved part of victorian society which is taking even in england the music of american minstrelsy they take this like this working class music well when they start having bands they start having these working class ensemble playing working class music and it doubles down on this working class identity of the salvation army in england mm, and so they've it's it's the, the same ensemble as the brass band but it's different sort of music right right, right. now what that's a different context when the when the salvation army starts using bands in america the earliest salvation army music in america is minstrel music it's using banjos and bones and tambourines before they have any sort of connotation as a timbrel in a Salvation Army system, but it looks like minstrel bands. But when they start using brass bands in America, it connects to American society differently. Right. And this, this is, is where key. my, this is like the real crux of my study that other people haven't done this intentional work. Other people have noticed similar things, but this is bands in America. So as the Salvation Army is coming in 1880, so the first brass band in America is 1884 in East of Liverpool, Ohio you have the American brass band has largely has already begun evolving into the American wind band. There are few American brass bands. And by 1900, there's essentially no American brass bands outside of the Salvation Army. But what Americans associate, there's a few different things. One, American doesn't have an orchestral tradition. American doesn't have a, a, a noble, like the musical systems of orchestras and cathedral right. choirs that Europe has. So they're, American, they're, they're dependent. The reason they don't have it is like they're dependent upon the uh, um, 
patronage. institutional wealth and patronage. Right. Yeah, correct. Of, of like the of of aristocracy. Like the, yeah, the aristocratic nature. Okay, so like we don't have that. So correct. that's why you don't end up like you don't have that tradition. So there, there aren't orchestras in America, and the history of orchestras in America are as wealthy people trying to separate themselves from the working class, like the. American brass band was the navig navigated culture culture for Americans. And so bands weren't seen as working class. They kind of cross class. But in the 1880s with uh, John Philip Sousa, who's described in the time as being the ideal man, hmm. like bands. And, and think about like moral... manhood. Let me interrupt you. Like, so manhood in those times, this is like another subject, is like a, a notable virtue at that point. It's a 19th century virtue. It, yeah. The, the chamber music hall in Cincinnati has the 13 virtues written over the hall. And it's like piety, uh, purity, generosity, manliness, right? So this idea. Um, so when Salvation Army starts using bands in America, it suggests something moral and good. And that's furthered by the fact the association of brass bands with the Civil War. Mark Knoll has his, has his book on the on the civil war right as a, it's a theological, theological crisis mm-hmm. yeah and so it's the very hyper religious experience particularly in america's nostalgia so in the 1880s people look back on both sides of the civil war and they see that action as this sort of like theological theologically motivated good and because brass bands were so common and so prevalent in the civil war when Americans see Salvation Army brass bands as they start to emerge really at the end of the 1880s and into the 1890s, this codes, Amer- this codes the Salvation Army differently to Americans than the brass bands in England do. Mm. It codes them as morally good. Mm. It codes them as like, the, it's different. Let right? me see if I can break this down a little bit. So then there is, a, <clears throat> with a modern example, and there's pro- it certainly will be flawed because I'm coming up with it on the fly. But... Let's say, like, in our time, grunge, okay, like, um, well, not our time, like when we were kids, grunge music was around and you had, what is it, Pearl Jam or whoever. I mean, our mom, our mom and dad didn't let us listen to it. But any, anyhow, so you have that. But uh, let's say you came in and you started to dress in grunge dress and you started to play Kurt Cobain music and whatever. And then that that then would, would be saying something it, it, like if you're in a time machine and we went back and we went that time, we would be connecting with that culture and we would be identifying ourselves. If we dressed that way, we played music that way, um, probably some other. A, a better, ex- a better, exa- a better yeah. example would be liking, um, liking jazz in New Orleans in the 1920s. Like this was CD and dirty music, okay. or something like that. Whereas going to hear that same music now played at the Kennedy Center by the way Marcel. Marcellus yeah. and people wearing suits. Yeah. That's a different experience. Like it means cult- culturally, it means something different, right. right? It's like, it's not carrying the same messages. So the Salvation Army is not separated by time, but a brass band of the Salvation Army right. playing on the streets of London means something different to the people participating in it and the people experiencing it than it does in the United States. And so at the same time, the United States, uh, and the, there's other reasons, it's not only the music, but the Salvation Army, more so than in other places, begins to be revered by society and by well-to-do society. And this is uh, exaggerated and amplified with the Donut Girls in World War One, that the Salvation Army becomes this cherished part of American cultural life that is separated from its mission, right? And so... Um, uh, uh, so, so like in our great grandmother was Diane, a donut, donut girl, for instance. 
Yeah. Uh, Winston in Red Hot and Righteous. So she, so she talks about how the Salvation Army in the, the the action of the Salvation Army America enabled multiple readings. So a Salvationist could understand the action of the Salvation Army to be mission oriented and evangelically oriented, but the same the same activity could be perceived by passersby as being just charity and do goodism, right? Mm-hmm. It's just these people, the all these are just happy do gooders. And how many times have we encountered people like, oh, I never really thought the Salvation Army was a church or a Christian organization. That is not, that is more so the case of the Salvation Army in America than in other cultural contexts. And some of it has to do with the way our music was perceived. And as Salvation Army bands are playing this music on the streets, like again, it's for Salvationists, it carries meaning who know the words of these songs. But progressively as we're singing less of the songs of the music hall, in of popular culture, and we begin to sing our own songs, they it really carries a separate meaning. So when we hear, for instance, in Shine is the Light, so it's a, a great piece of Salvation Army music. When we hear Joy Webb's The Candle of the Lord, this carries some level of meaning to a Salvationist who knows the words that it doesn't carry to someone else. Now, everyone who hears the piece likes it, but then there's the Chick Webb song as well. Chick, um, Chick Yule. Yule, Chick Yule song. Chick Big Webb is moment. a- uh, Big brother moment. Thanks. Chick Webb is a is a band leader and the ba- a big band leader in New York in the 1930s and 40s. Sorry, Chick Ewell, uh the what is what's that song? Uh, what's the his, light has his come. Is the the light, light has come. Thanks. Like these songs carry meaning to us. That song is a theological is a theological statement and reaffirms who we are theologically and missionally when a Salvationist hears it. When you play that at a concert for someone who's not a salvationist it's just fun band music yes right and so it enables these double this this double reading of our activity right. and what we do so i would i mean and i'm so, just gonna jump in with my because i feel like i have to jump in as a host every now and then uh so then uh uh i think that like for the contemporary army that's that's more of a problem while it ended up shaping a culture that was in mission and active and um developed this great musical literature and was effective in mission for a long, long time. I think when you're trying to get to people outside of the army culture, it's very hard. And as a, you know, as a Salvation Army Corps officer to try to remind people that all of this exists so that we can connect with people who aren't a part of us this, yet. And this is, this is the challenge right now because there's this thing that is meaningful, us, meaningful to salvationists in right. discipleship and in identity formation, but sometimes can separate this as others. So people from outside the army can see the music of the Salvation Army and they can understand the mission of it, but it often will feel entirely othered. Like that's them. Like I support the mission of the army. So we often can gather supporters, but we're less effective of like drawing people into mission with us or to they don't see others often outside the army don't see salvation army identity as uh as transferable and this is what the salvation army was screaming on the streets when they're playing with minstrel bands outside a outside a music hall playing the music that someone was singing inside is there's this there's a transformable message. It's like, I can become that. Salvation mm-hmm, Army mm-hmm. shouting as they're singing songs about pilgrims bound for glory and come and join us on our mission. Come and join us on our way. Come like join our army made... to battle we go. Yeah, like those things are like, bam, I right. can join that. That's me. And we, we don't, like there's people trying to do it now and being more intentional about it. 
but from the 1920s, from the 1914 even, into like some of the things that happened in the 70s with the Joy Strings and some of the other groups in the U.S., there's not much that the army is doing to, sh- to reach into culture. Right. It's like right, kind right. of like this establishment of our own culture. Well, I mean, even the words, uh, and there's a thousand come join our army. Okay. What does that say to somebody outside? It's like, that is, it's ours. It's not yours. We'll let you into it. And we even do this like within, and I do it. I'm guilty of it too. Like with the, um, and, and other churches do that too. Like you're welcome with us or, you know, come yeah. worship with us. Um, uh, it, trying to recognize where people, and that's part of why I've taken a little bit of heat for our sign and just rebranding our local expression of the Salvation Army's ecclesiology as the Tampa Salvation Army Church. It's um, because I take heat from it from Army people because they say, "Well, no, we're a, we're the core. We're not we're not a church." Well, I mean, everything we do suggests that the best word in the English language to identify what we do is church. But also, we're trying to get people. <laughs> like they don't know yeah. what the core means, C O R P S. Much less the fact you have this French word. Like, what's it going to? Act- and no, no disrespect to the French, but like, like what is it going to communicate to somebody driving by? And the the same goal of saying come join our core, our army, that the goal of that is the same thing, but it's hopefully connecting better other people. Now, I I know you're not suggesting actually that then we just abandon this tradition. As a whole, this no. is outside of your outside of your project. But like, let's, I only have a few more minutes with you right now. Maybe we can have a part two or something. But um, I mean, what's the, the the big question is like? Well, should we even have bands anymore? It's like really unconnected to the mission. It's just like uh, feeding ourselves, making ourselves feel good yeah. about our past experiences. If I can jump in here, yeah. So there's a few things. One, and the greatest, the one of the greatest things with the Salvation Army, the Salvation Army believes that anyone can serve and anyone can serve well that God can take the gifts we have, the resources we have, and they can be used, whether it be financial, whether they be like personal, whether it be our time, whether it be our skills, any of that. God wants to transform all of that to be used for his kingdom. Amen. Right? That is like central to what we believe. And so I think that's the, it's the truth mm-hmm. is when someone comes in, like if, if our bands keep someone who's a really great saxophone player from joining us, then that's not helping the mission. Right. Um, but we have this gift we have like this tradition that has been passed down we have closets full of brass instruments often at core right to not use them would be the waste it'd be terrible it'd be tragedy to not to use these things that we have as a bandmaster in the salvation army so i've got to think about who my audiences are like and how we communicate that message we have this rich language of music that carries deep theological meaning that is amazing right we shouldn't get rid of it, but how we perform it. Like if I just play Shine is the Light on the street or in a concert without doing something to communicate its message, then I've failed. Right, right. And wow. something's, something's gone wrong. I've I've just become uh, just making you shouting useless amens or just speaking a language that nobody understands, right? It might as well be preaching on the streets of Wilmore in in French to go back to our French brothers and sisters. Like it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Right. So if I've got to, I've got to, if I'm going to use this music, which I think is good, and I think it's a gift that's been passed down to us, I've got to figure out how to communicate in it in our communities. Further, I ought to be thinking about how can I use this music to still tell other people they're us. Like, so when we go out and play open airs with the SSF, we try to use pop songs whenever we can as a means of saying, like, hey, like, you know, this song, stop and listen to us. Like, we want to transform its message for something else, for something more. 
And if we play bits of the army music, like I won't play them unless we have a screen that can elucidate its meaning. We have lots of gifted students who can often, um, we, we have a, a student that created a Bethany Kelly as a recent alumni who created a video to go along with shine as the light for us when we've played that piece or play other pieces or doing having dramatic effects so that mm -hmm. we can communicate the message of those songs to people. Pyrotechnics, I hope. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Great. Uh, we have to be able, if we're going to use it, we have to be able to communicate it to people to whom we're trying to share that message with. If not, it's a waste. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. Oh, that's or... great. Yeah. I love it, Nate. Um, Oh man, well, we don't have any, any I just want to say like, I was really hoping that we could get into uh, Andrew and Chris Cuomo moment. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> there was a funny, uh, we, when I t talked to Nathan about this, he sent me a, a link to Andrew and Chris, Chris Cuomo getting in uh, on CNN and getting a little battle going on, a brotherly rivalry, but uh, sorry, we didn't get there. Um, well, yeah. I think there's more Next to say, time. and we didn't drop into your, um, dissertation as much as I would have liked, but I think we hit on several of the point, like uh, maybe we can get something another time too, where we can talk about Booth Tucker, uh, Frederick Booth Tucker. I'd love, yeah, I'd love to talk <laughs> about Fred and, Fred and Emma and uh, Maude and Ballington. Yeah, but. so th these are um, uh, the, well, the, the daughters of, the daughter and then son of William Booth, um, and they were national leaders of the Salvation Army in the United States and that Nathan suggested they set the army up for part of the things that problems and, and you know, benefits that we deal with today. You want to drive Ballington, give me a 30 second version? Well, Ballington and Maud leave the army to go form the volunteers of America. And it's right. You know, they leaving the army as a booth child meant you're also kicked out of the family. So they changed their, their son's name. Their seven year old son, William became Charles after they left. Um, but kind of exploring my dissertation does this exploring the difference between the Salvation Army and the Volunteers of America show us some like key identity pieces. Um, and there's a crisis that as Salva as American identity is being reformed and reimagined after the Civil War, that happens at the same time that it's that, that the United that the Salvation Army arrives. And so you for Salvationists, you have this competing identity. For Ballington and Maud, being an American uh, superseded being Salvationist, which was kind of preceded uh, through a book that came before Mount bought Maud wrote a book called beneath two flags. Right, right. And what kind of you realize is you can't really beneath be beneath two flags. Mm. Like, and so she, they chose the American flag and then uh, Emma and Fred come and they are kind of, they, they established this idea and Ballantine and Maud bifurcated that Salvation Army ministry. They promoted the social work and kind of hid the, the evangelical work mm -hmm. from donors and, Fred and Emma kind of draw these things together and like see these as, as grandpa would put his hands together as an unbroken cord that mm -hmm, like, you mm -hmm. can't, you can't have one without the other. Right. Um, and then uh, Emma tragically dies as a, the only casualty of a minor train accident in Dean Lake, Missouri. Mm -hmm. And Fred is just, in, you know, he's, he's shortly moved thereafter. And then Evangeline comes and kind of perpetuates and continues the legacy of Ballington. Mm. kind of creating these dual readings of the Salvation Army as separate evangelical and um, and uh, missional. Right. So, and well, then there's nice a thousand summary. things to go there. The, uh, you know, yeah. I've, I read uh, just re recently um, a part of Albert Orsborn's um, autobiography called The House of My Pilgrimage. And in it, he what he does is so special. He was still around in the time, young man in the time of, 
the founding people of the army, but he gives an amazing description of Booth Tucker. I mean, yeah, he says that he would tell stories and he would put himself in it. He just had this amazing narrative ability. I mean, but yeah, oh, man, I'm sorry we don't have longer, yeah. Nate. Um, yeah. Dr. Miller, Dr. Miller, you know, you haven't even been hooded yet, but um, thank you for your time. And um, uh, I would have been hooded if it weren't for the coronavirus. Oh, yeah, bless you. There's that. So. When are we, um, let's see, at some point your dissertation will be, um, will be will be published in some some form but isn't aren't you have a few chapters in word and deed articles there's a portion of a chapter in a word and deed article and they've asked me to write another one or take a portion of my dissertation to put toward that and i've had some some con con contact with some publishers that are interested in publishing it as a more popular book mm-hmm. so those will be projects for the coming year so i think there's a chance in, in one of 2021's word and deed issues there'll be an, a small essay from the dissertation and then hopefully in the coming years there'll be a reduced version of the dissertation in book form great so you all can find that there in any of the word and deed articles you can just probably type google the salvation army word and deed and most of them are available online there and so you if you're interested in the things that nathan and i've been talking about that that's probably the best resource for Salvation Army studies that beyond individual books and um, monographs, but you could find um, those articles there, which are peer reviewed. And um, so they're, they're excellent. Nathan, love you. Appreciate you. Love you too, love you too Andy. You don't get that from all of your uh, podcasts. I need to say I love you to everybody guests. else, but I do. Yeah. And I love all you, our listeners too. All right, Nate. All right. Next week on the podcast, we have Steve Vincent, founder of Power From The Sun. If you'd like to learn more about us, please feel free to check us out at tampasa.org and give us a follow on Twitter at SalArmyTampa. And of course, go ahead and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks so much for joining us. See you next time.